Church family, let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege that you've given us this morning to gather here and to declare Jesus is alive. Jesus, we are so grateful for what you did for us on the cross, providing a way for our sins to be forgiven, and we rejoice this morning of what happened on the third day that you rose, defeating death. And so we are here this morning as people filled with hope. I pray that our worship that we have lifted up to you this morning has been pleasing to you and been glorifying to you. And now as we open your word, Father, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would change us, that you would wake us up so that we will live as people who truly believe forever Jesus is alive. And we pray this in the mighty name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Isn't it good to come together on Sunday morning and to remind ourselves through singing, through our worship, through prayer, and now through the preaching of God's word, just how great our God is? Isn't it worth it? 100% it's worth it. Every week I look so forward to Sunday. But I have to admit there's one Sunday that I look forward to the most. And that's kickoff Sunday in September. And this year, it's going to be extra special because on September the 10th, our kickoff Sunday, we are going to have a special service that evening to honor and to thank Pastor Rick and Lynn for their faithful service to their king and to us for the past 22 years. So mark it on your calendar. If God has used Pastor Rick and Lynn to impact your life and to move you forward as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you need to be here on September the 10th, kickoff Sunday this fall at 6 p.m. Because that's what we're going to do. You see, as the summer winds down and everyone starts to return from vacation, there's this sense of momentum that starts building around the office leading up to kickoff Sunday. Everyone's back from vacation. There's this kind of feeling of reunion, a sort of reconnecting. And if you're newer to Calvary, you will notice on September the 10th, that morning when we go back to two services, a definite buzz in the lobby. As people are reconnecting with the church family in anticipation of starting a new season of ministry together. It's an atmosphere that is very different than what the followers of Jesus Christ were experiencing the day after his crucifixion. Rather than momentum, or the joy of reconnecting, anticipation, words like mourning, weeping, fear, and confusion, more accurately would describe how his followers were feeling that Sabbath. But for those who went to the tomb that Sunday morning, they became the witnesses of the greatest unrivaled event in human history that changed everything. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to chapter 20. We will be looking at the first 18 verses. We will be reading John's first-hand account of the events of that initial kickoff Sunday. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, 
and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord this morning. From this passage, I want to highlight three discipleship essentials based on the first kickoff Sunday. And the first essential is this, keep gathering. Keep gathering to worship Christ. I refer to this historical morning which we have just read together as kickoff Sunday. Based on verse 1 where John records early on the first day of the week a direct reference to Sunday. While it was still dark... Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. What Mary, Simon Peter, and John saw that Sunday morning kicked off the discipleship essential which we still participate in today, evidenced by your presence here this morning, where followers of Jesus Christ have traditionally set aside Sunday, the first day of the week, also known as the Lord's Day, to gather together. And I don't know what motivated you to come to church today, but I know heading forward from this Sunday on what's motivated me to come to church every Sunday. The catalyst or the motivation for why we are to gather is to remember and to celebrate that Christ has risen from the dead. Every week as we leave our homes to come and assemble, what should be fueling my commitment, what should be fueling your commitment to gather and fill your hearts with joy is the reality that Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. And I wonder as we drive to church and people drive by our vehicles as we're waiting at the light and we're impatient, I wonder if what we are communicating to them non-verbally is at all anything that we're excited to go to church, that Jesus is alive. 
But that's why we come. We come to celebrate and to remember that he is alive. He has risen from the dead. That's why I thought this week, I don't think we should wait anymore for only Easter Sunday to remind each other that he has risen. He has risen indeed. That is something that we should be saying to each other every day. Because here's why. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, we have no reason to gather here this morning at all. We would totally be wasting our time here this morning by gathering if Jesus did not rise from the dead. And Paul makes this case in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'd invite you to turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Listen to what he wrote to the believers in Corinth who were in doubt about the hope of the resurrection of their dead, which, by the way, is 100% contingent on the truth that Jesus has indeed been raised from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then if you go down to verse uh, 20, actually we'll start in verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, listen closely, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Amen? You see, brothers and sisters, belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is necessary for being saved. It's necessary in order to escape facing the wrath of God. Paul in Romans 10, 9 makes it so clear that if you declare with your mouth and what? Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's absolutely necessary to believe in the resurrection of Christ for salvation. This is what makes Christianity stand alone in comparison to other religions. No other religious leader can compare to Jesus Christ. Every other religious leader is either dead or alive. But Jesus Christ is the only religious leader who was dead and now is alive and lives forevermore. Listen to what he said to John in Revelations chapter 1, verse 17 to 18. I believe it's on the screen behind us.
In verse 17, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he, referring to Christ, placed his hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Without him, without his resurrection, there is no Christianity. Our faith is useless and we are wasting our time here this morning. The truth claims of our faith are based solely upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And if Mary Magdalene and Simon Peter and John were here today, they would be affirming us enthusiastically that we are not wasting our time gathering here this morning to worship Christ because they were there that kickoff Sunday. And John records for us what they saw so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. As one author wrote, Jesus' bodily resurrection is the crowning proof that he truly is the Messiah, the Son of God, who laid down his life for us, which we will celebrate and remember later in our service. Therefore, church family, as believers have since the first kickoff Sunday, we too must not forsake assembling ourselves together to worship Christ. We must keep gathering because Christ has risen from the dead and is alive and is coming back again. You might not understand the impact of why you chose to come this morning, but in gathering together every Sunday, we testify to one another and to our community that Jesus is alive. May God help us not become a church building that eventually our community drives by and there's no one in the parking lot. We must be here because he is alive and we must testify to one another and to our community. The second discipleship essential based on the first kickoff Sunday is keep demonstrating. Keep demonstrating your love for Christ. Mary Magdalene, you'll recall from Pastor Rick's sermon on Mother's Day, was a woman whose life had been dramatically transformed by the love and power of Jesus. For years, she was an outcast, tormented by demons who had possessed her. Until as Mark records in his gospel, Jesus freed her from this nightmare by driving seven demons out of her and releasing her from their possession. And from that day on, what do we notice about Mary? She faithfully demonstrated her love for Christ, her deep love for Christ. If your life has been transformed by the love and power of Jesus, it should be so obvious to those who watch us that we demonstrate our love for Jesus Christ. She displayed the appropriate response to having experienced the transforming power of Christ in her life, which is to unashamedly, not secretly, not quietly, unashamedly, publicly demonstrate your love for Christ and for his mission. Luke records that Mary, after Jesus had transformed her, joined other faithful women who had also been healed of evil spirits and other sicknesses, 
And they followed Jesus and his disciples as they went from village to village as he preached and proclaimed the kingdom of God. And listen to what Luke records they did. They, along with many others, contributed out of their own means to support Jesus and his disciples. One way we demonstrate our love for our Savior is out of our own means. We sacrificially serve the mission of Christ to go and make disciples. All of you who are going to be working this week at VBS, you're going to run into a lot of bratty, disobedient children. (laughs) But by serving them, you're saying, Jesus, thank you for transforming my life. Thank you for changing me. You are serving his mission. I was happy to hear this week that our team that's going to Tanzania, our young adults, they need $60,000 raised to support their mission to go make disciples in Tanzania this summer. I was pleased to hear we're now over 42,000. We still have more to go. We need to keep giving. We need to keep supporting. Because by supporting through our time, our talent, our resources, we are demonstrating that we love Christ and we are all about his mission. Thank you. Thank you for being a congregation who has faithfully demonstrated your love for Christ and his mission by giving of your time, talents, and resources. And why is this so important? Why is it so important that you're helping at VBS or Spark Soccer or Day Camp or supporting our young adults going to Tanzania? Because faithfully demonstrating our love for Christ can have a life-changing impact on others as well as ourselves. I'm praying that God is going to call some of those young adults who are going to Tanzania into full-time missions. And because you supported them, they're going to go. And we don't know the impact of our demonstration of love to Christ by giving will have on them. And we see this in our text this morning. Mary, in her practical demonstration of love for Christ that Sunday morning, had a life-changing impact on Simon Peter, and particular John, and on herself. You see, unable to visit Jesus' tomb on Sabbath, when did Mary go on the Sunday? As soon as she could. Most likely between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. I guess that makes her a morning person. And why did she go? She went to demonstrate her love for Christ. We know according to the other gospels that she, along with two other ladies, had purchased spices to anoint Jesus' body. Listen, as an act of love. Unlike the Egyptians, the Jews did not embalm their dead. So to offset the stench of decay, they would anoint their dead family, friends, bodies with spices. And you know what's interesting? The fact they came to anoint Jesus' body on the third day after his burial, what did that show? Like the disciples, those ladies were not expecting him to rise from the dead. Even though he had told them numerous times he would. So when Mary arrives at the tomb and sees that the stone has been removed from the entrance, that would have been devastating to her. Not only was Jesus, the man who had freed her from her torment and turned her life around dead, but now it appears his body, who she had come to anoint, was missing. Put yourselves in her shoes. Imagine going to the grave of a close friend or a family member 
just a couple of days after the graveside service and you go in there to maybe lay some flowers and you, you get to the gravesite and you see that the dirt's been moved away. And you look in and your loved one's coffin is open and their body is missing. That would be devastating to you as well. So how does Mary respond in that moment? What does she do? She goes running. She goes running in verse 3 to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, who we all know is who? John, the author of this gospel. And she says to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we, affirming she was there, not on her own, but the other ladies were there, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, and we do not know where they have put him. Mary is assuming the worst. Jesus' body has been stolen by grave robbers or possibly the temple authorities. And at that moment, the possibility of resurrection hasn't even crossed her mind. And it's in the second half of verse 3 that I want us to focus. That we begin to see the impact Mary had on Simon Peter and John because she demonstrated her love for Christ. She went to the tomb to anoint his body and in so doing she saw that the stone had been removed. And when she tells Peter and John, what happens? Immediately, Peter and John start running for the tomb. And I love the humility of John. Do you know what he says? And humbly, John notes the other disciple He's referring to himself. Outran Peter and reached the tomb first. (laughs) I mean, there was no trash talking in John. And I think that's why God chose him to be the eyewitness who would author this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Because if it was one of you and I writing, we would wrote, and by the way, I smoked Peter. (laughs) I totally outran him and got to the tomb first. And he simply says, The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And what happened when John reached the tomb? Verse 5. He bent over and looked in. But unlike Mary, whose thoughts were consumed with the missing body of Christ, John's thoughts were captured by what he saw. He saw the strips of linen lying there, which Christ's body had been bound in by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. But he did not enter the tomb. Meanwhile, Peter... When he finally caught up and arrived at the tomb in typical Peter fashion, and in my mind, I constantly had that picture. Remember in cartoons, you'd have someone get there first, and then the ones who were forward, like, that was Peter. He came later. And and by the way, when I was younger and I read this, this historical event, I felt I could relate a lot more to John. But now at 51, I'm so glad I can relate to Peter. Because last summer, one of the The day that a man never wants to come who plays social slow-pitch softball arrived for me. When you hit the ball and you get to first base and you hear from the bench, Kelvin, do you want a courtesy runner? (laughs) A man never wants to hear that. Do you want a courtesy runner? But Peter finally caught up. And he arrived at the tomb, and what does he do? He goes straight into the tomb. And he too was captivated by what he saw. He too saw the strips of linen lying there, 
But notice in verse 7, he noticed something else. As well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head, it was still lying, read closely, in its place, separate from the linen. They see grave clothes. But what they saw that Sunday morning was very different than the only other time that John mentions grave clothes in his gospel. Do you remember what happened at Lazarus' tomb? Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And so Lazarus came forth bound, hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. But here, in the tomb where Christ's body was laid, there was no unbinding to be done. He was gone. The strips of linen were still lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head, lying separate from the linen. And I found this really interesting. In the New American Standard translation, referring to the head cloth, it says, it was rolled up in place by itself. Now that might, on first hearing this, might not seem too significant to you. But man, did it ever get me excited this week. You see, these small cloths were wrapped around under the chin and tied on top of the head of of the person who had deceased to keep their mouth closed. Isn't it interesting that in the translation, the New American Standard Bible, John notes, it did not, the head cloth, did not retain the shape it would have had when the Lord's head was inside it. But rather, someone who had no more use for it had rolled it up and laid it neatly beside the strips of linen. Wow. The details of the gospel are incredible. We must pay attention to them. And so based on what they saw, it did not make any sense that grave robbers or temple authorities had taken his body. If so, why were his grave clothes left in such an orderly manner? A year and a half ago, Jen and April went up to our farm in the spring to do a little ice fishing. And when they got there, they opened the door. Nothing was left in orderly manner in our cottage because robbers had come in and they turned everything upside down. It was a complete disaster. But not here, not in that tomb. It was not a chaotic sight when John and Peter looked inside the tomb. There was no sign of a struggle or that the grave clothes had been taken off. They were simply lying there in their regular folds as if the body of Jesus had simply evaporated out of them. Jesus' missing body was not due to grave robbers, but due to the all-powerful hands of God. And look at verse 8. Finally, John, who had reached the tomb first, went inside And these next four words, he saw and believed. He saw and believed. What he saw penetrated his mind. He realized what had happened and he believed. The Lord had risen from the dead and left the tomb. What convinced him? The state of the grave clothes suddenly made that truth clear to him. Although verse 9 acknowledges he and Peter didn't completely understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead, John still believed. And note the emphasis is not on how he believed, it's on the fact that he did believe. 
And by the time he writes his gospel, which we are going through in this series, the church had developed an understanding of the Old Testament prediction of Messiah's resurrection. It just amazed me this week. Because Mary went to the tomb to demonstrate her love for Christ, she saw that the stone had been removed. She ran to tell Peter and John. Did you catch this as well? Remember who Peter is? And Peter, in spite of his denial of Christ, was blessed by God with the opportunity to see firsthand the empty tomb and the grave clothes of Jesus lying there. And John, the disciple whom Jesus loved and who loved Jesus, was blessed to be the first. Can you imagine on your resume, the first to believe in the resurrection? Wow, what a life-changing impact. Mary's faithfulness to keep demonstrating her love for Christ had on Peter and John that kickoff Sunday. And then verse 10 says, the disciples went back to where they were staying. Wow. Keep demonstrating. Keep gathering. Keep demonstrating. You have no clue the impact your demonstration of love for Christ will have on others. And as we'll see in the third section, yourself. The third disciples of essential, keep telling. Keep telling others, Christ has risen from the dead. Mary wanted nothing more than to ensure that Christ's body would be buried with dignity. But Jesus had something so much greater planned for her that kickoff Sunday morning. And in verse 11, we read, as she stood outside the tomb weeping, determined to find out what had happened to the body of Jesus. Do you see what she did? Take a look in your Bibles. She too, like John, bent over and looked into the tomb. But notice this. Unlike Peter and John who saw only grave clothes, verse 12, Mary saw angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? Not because they did not know, but because they wanted to help Mary understand this was not a time for tears. I hope you'll watch the goodness of God as he ministers to people in this section. God in his goodness sent two angels to comfort Mary who was distraught. And in her sorrow, she answers them using similar language to when she initially reported to Peter and John what she had found but this time in a more personal way. Look in verse two what she says. She came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Now go down to verse 13, answering the angels. They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. And then it happens. Having answered the angels, she turns around. And John records in verse 14, she saw Jesus standing there. Mary. Mary of Magdala? A former outcast tormented by demons became the first person to see Jesus resurrected. Wow. In the midst of her deepest sorrow, 
Jesus literally showed up and is standing there. That's good news for us, folks. We're all going to have those moments in deep sorrow. Be confident of this. Your shepherd will show up. He will show up. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. Why do you think she didn't realize it was Jesus? Three possible reasons. Perhaps her vision was so blurred from all her tears. I can tell you that happens to me sometimes when sweat or tears happens as I'm speaking. I'm like, oh, Lord, help me. I can't read my notes. It happens. Maybe you've had that happen to you. So maybe she didn't recognize him because her eyes were so blurred from her tears. Or perhaps because Jesus' glorified body looked so different than the last time she saw it on Friday. Beaten, bruised, and broken. Or perhaps, like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, whose eyes were kept from recognizing him as he walked along with them. Maybe hers, that happened to her that day. We don't know. But what I want us to notice is what Jesus did for her. He begins to minister to Mary, who thinks, by the way, he's the gardener. And Jesus, in verse 15, repeats what the angels had asked her. Woman, why are you crying? The angels had asked her, woman, why are you crying? Jesus is now asking her, why are you crying? And then he adds, who is it you are looking for? And if you look at her response in verse 15, thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. It's as if she didn't even hear what the gardener had asked her. She didn't answer why she was crying, and she didn't answer who she was looking for. Because she was so fixated on the problem of the physical body of her Lord being missing, yet Jesus was standing right there in front of her. The one she had been weeping over. And this is how beautiful Jesus is. And so Jesus, to help her, says, Mary. Do you see how it grew from the angels going, why are you crying? Jesus, why are you crying? Who's it you're looking for? Mary. He calls her by name. And at once, she recognizes him. And in her joy, she cries out in Aramaic, Rabboni, teacher. Can you imagine what that must have felt like? We went to Ribfest the other night. Earlier in that day, I had got an email from my family chat asking to pray for my eldest brother who was in Pakistan uh, training pastors up in the northern border, and he wasn't doing well. Please pray for him. And then, sorry, that was the day before, and then we went to Ribfest Friday night, and I come up, and I had no clue, and there's my older brother. I was like, this is unbelievable. Here we are praying that your fever will break, and you'll be able to finish your ministry. I didn't know that he was in Dubai at that time, and he was already on his way back to Toronto. It was such a great feeling to see my brother who I was concerned about and who I've been praying with. And here's Mary being weeping that the body of Jesus has been missing. And now here he is right in front of her. And in that moment, Jesus affirmed what he had said in John 10, 3 and 27. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. He knows your name. 
My sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me. And upon hearing the voice of her shepherd, Mary's sorrow is swallowed up with joy. Instead of the dead body of her Lord, which she so desperately wanted to find, she finds herself face to face with the living Lord. And by Jesus' comments in verse 17, Mary, in response to her deep joy, clung to him. Perhaps she reached out and held onto his arm, or perhaps she fell down and grasped his feet for fear that she would once again lose him. And what does Jesus say to her in verse 17? Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. There's been much debate as to why Jesus seemed to prohibit Mary from holding on to him or touching him. It doesn't make sense that he was stopping her from literally touching him because later in the same chapter, he invites Thomas to do that very thing. I would agree with the commentary that Jesus was helping Mary begin to understand his relationship with his followers. You and I, herself, was going to change now that he is risen from the dead. Mary's thinking, great, the resurrection of Jesus means a return to my normal relationship as disciple with my rabbi. The one she had enjoyed previously before his crucifixion But in telling her, don't cling to me, Jesus was actually implying, don't hold on to the former things. Don't hold on to how things formerly were. No, Mary, this is a time of joy. This is the beginning of an entirely new era. His permanent return and presence was going to come in another form. And he did not want her to settle for only what she was experiencing in that moment in the garden. Jesus so gracious, spiritually redirecting her attention away from his physical presence in preparation for the soon coming gift of the Holy Spirit, who would be given to his followers after his ascension. And the coming of the Holy Spirit recorded later in this chapter, chapter 20, would be the promised gift that would return Jesus to his followers permanently. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 16 and 17. And I will ask the Father and he'll give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. So Mary, don't hold on to me, but rather go instead to my brothers and do what? Tell them. Keep telling, tell them. I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Here Jesus not only distinguishes himself from them with regard to their relationship to God, but at the same time he also links them with himself. And there's something very important about how he addressed them. He referred to them for the first time as brothers, brothers. He is introducing the new relationship followers of Christ will have, the relationship you and I enjoy, that we have with God because of the work, which we're gonna remember shortly that he did on the cross on our behalf, sealed by his resurrection. We are heirs with Christ of all the glories that God has awaiting his family. 
His message to Mary confirmed two truths. Mary, go tell them. My physical presence, resurrected physical presence on earth is going to be temporary. We know that it was 40 days. Before long, he would ascend to take his place in glory. And secondly, Mary, tell them that my relationship with them is going to change. Mary and the disciples and we here today would have to give way to clinging to him in a new kind of bond that is based on faith. Based on faith. And Mary, the once outcast, demon-possessed woman, was charged by Christ to go and prepare his disciples for his coming. First in the form of his resurrected body, which they will all become witnesses of shortly later on in this chapter. But secondly, more profoundly, his soon coming in the person of the Holy Spirit. Mary became a courier of news for the second time. She alone was the bearer of the report that not only had the stone been removed and Christ's body was missing, but now she gets to deliver the good news that Jesus has risen and she has seen him. So what does Mary do? Ah, let me think about this. I've kind of got a busy day, Lord. A lot of things on my schedule. I don't know if I have time to do what you're telling me to do. No. Mary acted the way she has always acted to her Savior. She demonstrated again her love for Christ, obediently went and told the good news to the brothers. And this is the beauty of the impact of that kickoff Sunday on Mary. God chose her to be the first herald of the resurrection tidings. John was the first to believe, but Mary was the first to see the risen Lord. Mary told the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And note the progression of names that she refers to Jesus after his resurrection. Verse 15, she calls him sir, presuming he's the gardener. Then when he calls her name, she says, Rabboni, teacher. But here when she delivers the good news, she says, I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. Her faith had come to full maturity as resurrection faith. So as we close this morning, what can you and I tell? What must we keep telling? There's so many things but three that impacted me this week. Because he is alive, we don't mourn as those who have no hope. I'm telling you that. Because he is alive, we will never be alone. The gift of the Holy Spirit ensures the resurrected presence of Christ is with us forever and in us, and I am telling you that. Because he is alive, we too will live forever with him. Jesus tells us, because I live, you also will live. Church family, we must not selfishly cling to Jesus. Rather, in obedience to his command, we must go and tell others the good news that he is alive. Keep gathering, keep demonstrating, and keep telling. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Your word is truth. Thank you for raising Jesus from the dead and for giving us purpose for being here this morning. Thank you that our faith is not in vain. 
Our preaching is not useless. You have allowed us to hear and to see and to feel the experience of eyewitnesses that Jesus, you are alive. Would you help us now as we are obedient to the instructions you gave us to remember and to celebrate your death. Without what you were willing to do by laying down your life for us, there would be no resurrection. And so God, I pray that as we come around the Lord's table, there will be a new sense of awe and a new sense of mission that you will generate in our lives. Because yes, Jesus died, but Sunday morning, kickoff Sunday, he rose from the dead. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for ministering to each one of us. In your name I pray, amen. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There was a sense of urgency when Jesus told Mary, go instead and tell my brothers, because he knew his time to go back to the Father was coming soon. Here we just read, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Folks, let's live with urgency. We do not know when he will come, but we know he's coming because he has risen from the dead. And so let's spend our time while we wait for his return by gathering, by demonstrating, and by telling others that he is alive. And so I invite you to, today as we close our service to join me with how we do on Easter Sunday morning and respond to my statement like we really believe he is alive. And he's coming back. He is risen. He is risen indeed. God bless you. Have a great week.